Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Matt Smith, my co-host is Rhiannon Evans, and I can now say that including this, we are three episodes away from the conclusion of this podcast series. A look at the finale will be coming shortly, followed by a special interview to wrap everything up. For today, we bring you a special interview with Bruno Heller. As one of the creators, showrunners and writers of the series, Bruno is largely responsible for the lovely show that we have been re-watching for the past few years. In more recent times, he's been responsible for the shows The Mentalist, Gotham and Pennyworth. But today, he joins us to reminisce about the good old days on the sets of Rome. Enjoy. Hey, are you Matt? I am Matt. Hello. I'm Bruno. Hello, Bruno. Good to see you. Thank you for doing this. I very much appreciate it. Oh, not at all. Happy to do it. I've reached that age in my life where I'm happy to talk about the old days. Rhiannon, Bruno. Hello, Bruno. Hey, Rhiannon. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure to be here. And we'd like to ask you about your knowledge of Rome and how you came to learn about it and applied that during the show. But just initially, can you talk about how you got involved in the show? As as I understand it, it was a, a pitch that HBO already had that they brought you in on and gave you ownership of? Yeah, essentially, it would be surprising if it hadn't worked that way because a project of that size kind of has to have the great corporate weight behind it before Mm. it gets off the ground. It was the end result of a lot of development shenanigans where they'd been hoping to do Alexander with Mel Gibson. Chris Albrecht, who was running HBO at the time, was, I think, correctly thought, you know, that kind of show of that epic scale was what TV needed. That fell through, I think, because Mel Gibson said he couldn't play Alexander too old, which is true. He would have played the dad. Anyway, it fell through. They were looking around other projects in a similar vein, and they had this thing with John Milius and and Bill McDonald. That's what they brought me in on. Um, Basically, at, at a very early stage you know John Milius is John Milius and a great legend great talent but wasn't there to be writing a a TV series he's a movie writer anyway I immediately sparked to the material and and we went from there Mm. so you were brought in to bring it into shape to some extent or to make it gel better with the television format to make it work better with the with the television format and the thing with TV series as opposed to movies is you need an engine and a kind of structure that can keep rolling. I mean, A, you need writers who can stay on the project. You know, that's why TV and movies are so different and why in TV the writer has more power than the director because you need consistency over time. And what shape was it in when when it came to you? Was it still very much the story of Varinus and Pullo and perhaps Octavian at that point? And was it the same sort of story that told the history of Rome, but at different levels of society? We had the three characters, Pullo, Varinus and the young Octavian and the missing eagle. And what immediately struck me about the concept was it was a sort of take on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead or that was the jumping off point for me that you could see the whole history of the fall of the Republic through the eyes of two ordinary Romans. It was perfectly set up for that. So that's essentially what I pitched to them as an extension of that idea. 
and we went from there to confess. I had been working for HBO as a script doctor on various things, so I had a good sense of the kind of thing that they needed, but I had really no no understanding or real knowledge of classical history. But because the process of development or just trying to sell the thing to them or building the pitch and, and going back to them with a built-out project took several months. I basically took a crash course in a history of that period. It came alive for me. There was a Rome that hadn't really been seen on TV before because aside from I, Claudius, which is sort of palace politics and hampered by sort of cardboard sets and the BBC budgets of, of that period, and it's very much about the elite, a realistic show about Rome that was sociologically true and politically true and gave you a kind of sense of what Rome looked and smelt like had not really been done as much as possible. That was where I'd go to when questioning myself about a scene, like what would a Roman do? Um, So much of it is about the bizarreness of, of a foreign moral universe. And again, previous iterations of Rome tend to take a kind of Judeo-Christian view of Roman morality, whereas I would try and think I was making a show that a Roman would understand the moral stakes as opposed to a modern audience. And then the modern audience would be drawn in by the strangeness of the of the world. And so it's a bit like science fiction, you know, or fantasy, although it's historical period. Once you look into them, all people of the past are strange, aren't they? Yeah, I think that comes through really strongly and is one of my favourite elements of it. I'm thinking particularly of the rituals that we see a lot of in season one in particular, where, you know, you don't hold back on the sacrifice and there are gods that most people have never heard of. So if they think it's all about Jupiter and Juno, well, they find out there's a whole world of gods that are just part of their lives that are being observed all the time. And I really loved that about the series. So this idea that I think a lot of people have that, oh, the Romans, they're just like us. And I think it really myth busted that, but they're really not like us. Yeah, no, and uh, trying to be pre-Abrahamic, so to speak, about things. So there is no judgmental God. There's no Bible. Like People are free to express themselves. It's a bit like it's wish fulfillment because it is an oppressive kind of superego of God-derived morality, whereas imagine being Greek or, or especially Roman, but Greek as well, or any of, any of those polytheistic societies where, like, the gods are do shit as well. We're held to a very, very high standard by Jesus and Abraham and all those guys, and the Romans were held to very high standards, but they created those standards for themselves. They were fully self-realized people, and that's the wish fulfillment that is fulfilled in that sort of thing in the same way that almost exactly the same way um, as the mafia movies, crime movies, but especially mafia movies, because that's a whole society where they're governed by their own code of morality rather than one that is imposed on them from outside. Indeed. And what you said very early on about looking at this as akin to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, I think that's my favourite quote about the series because it encapsulates so much of what really drew me into it, which is we've got these two very minor characters in Caesar's Gallic Wars, and then you extrapolate a whole story that they are the arc Mm. of the series, obviously. You're exactly right. As you say, look, to be precise, Julius Caesar is the creator of the series because he named those two guys in the Gallic Wars. And that's what 
Milius and McDonald sparked to. I think in the Gallic Wars, they had them the same rank. My only diversion from Caesar was to make them different ranks because it makes, you know, the whole, obviously, the chemistry of the two of them is, it starts from a difference in rank. That's in the Gallic War text, isn't it, Riadon, that they're the same rank from memory? Yes, that that's right. But I, it does give it a nice tension, doesn't it? That Polo being the kind of rebellious character, mm. that he could technically be pulled up by Gorinus at any moment. So it's, it kind of depends on that friendship. I mean, there are several mm-hmm. times where he might not survive because of his bad decision making. <laughs> yeah. If they're two characters that have to carry a whole show and just having them together is amusing because a lot of it does depend on just being able to spend time with the, the two leads talking to each other. You know, they have to be chalk and cheese. You know, two centurions would be like having, you know, Mel Gibson and Mel Gibson. It's like, great, but how do you create comedy or drama out of that? You know, they had to be diametrically opposed in their, in the way they thought about the world. Can I ask about the scale of the production? And mm-hmm. if that was a hard thing to convince people that it needed to be on this scale and, and what it was like going through the process of, of finally getting to film it in Italy and what that added to it. Because this could have been a very different production at any point of its time, I guess. I think Chris Albrecht had a kind of Napoleonic genius, which is, if I may say so, sorely lacking nowadays in my business, and that kind of showmanship in that kind of job. He thought... HBO needed a big budget, splashy show that you needed to cost a lot of money and to have that on screen and to show people what they were paying for when they were buying the premium service of HBO. There was a a very sort of well thought out but brave rationale behind making what was then the most expensive TV show ever made. And it needed to be shot in Italy for all kinds of symbolic and kind of artistic creative reasons that made sense. We also looked into it in terms of the nitty gritty. It could have been shot in Romania. It could have been shot in Bulgaria. It wasn't possible to shoot it in America. It's not possible to shoot in England. The usual places that you would shoot, you need the outdoors. So Rome was actually the logical, practical and emotionally correct place to do it. The whole drama of trying to shoot a TV series in Rome at that time that's a whole TV show in itself. It was a wonderful experience. Chinichita is just the most beautiful studio in the world. It's so romantic and, and gorgeous, and the light is amazing, and the crews are the best crews in the world. Um, no, the Eng- English crews are the best crews in the world, but <laughs> followed by uh, those Italian crews. But I think we were the first foreign TV series to, to shoot there. And the difference between shooting a movie and shooting a TV show created a lot of the cultural clashes and misunderstandings that made it tough. It was a very tough shoot. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it was emotionally the right place to be. Do you think that the actors and others involved felt more inspired by being, I know Chinachita isn't right in the centre of Rome, but being close to the remains and being able to go to the forum? Oh, listen, it was one of the first jobs of a TV showrunner keeping that kind of company together is keeping your actors happy, just being where they are and doing the show they're doing. And the leads were mostly British. And to be flown out to Rome and to play this great game in Rome was a dream for me too. I mean, 
to be able to do your job, but do it in that environment. And yeah, absolutely. We had a historical advisor and we had a lot of trips out to all the historical sites with the actors to talk to them about about the history and you know they got training intuition in in the kinds of things they would they would have needed to know the guys would be sword fighting and all you know all of that background knowledge and just Rome is still there it really is still there the way that the Romans specifically act like important people have an entourage and their entourage treats them with what seems to an Anglo-Saxon eye like bizarre respect. And there, there's a great deal of passion in the everyday way that people go about their business. Um, and all of those things hopefully fed into what you got on screen. So I wanted to move on to talk about the difference between the first and second season, mm. um, which we observed. Like I felt like the first season had more leisure to explore the history and obviously things had to speed up in the second season because you had to complete the story. I don't really have a specific question. I just wondered if you wanted to talk about what that Mm. was like, what you had to do to make sure that you could get up to the rise of Octavian. The first season is as originally planned. The second season is what I came up with after we knew before we made that, that we weren't going to get a third season that's one of those odd things about writing for tv you don't know when you get to end things normally the second season was a compromise between wanting to tell the story in a yeah leisurely measured form as you know there's a a huge wonderful rich sordid dramatic history that goes on between the two seasons or in and out of the two seasons but we simply didn't have time for and I thought we needed to get to to that apotheosis of of Octavian as the end, which meant it had a very different feel, which, you know, is okay. The other side of that is, is after you've killed Caesar, that's as much of the history as the audience knows. The first season had an interesting task, which is to make people interested in something where everyone knows the outcome. And that's why Pulo and Varinus were the key to it and why they were so important and the whole, that little plotline involving the baby was so important to making it work because you're basically waving your hand over here to take away from the fact that everyone knows what happens. And I guess that, and we've been trying to be mindful of this as we do our rewatch, that the technical problem with doing something that's grounded in history is you can't kind of invent an endpoint. You have to think what would be a good endpoint that exists in that historical narrative. exactly that accounts for the the kind of difference in speed of the two i think you chose the right endpoint in the series it was definitely the one to aim for which is the the climax between octavian and antony and cleopatra at that point but if you had the luxury of time would the second season have perhaps ended with the death of brutus and cassius and and given that whole yes first six episodes more breathing room yes exactly a few years ago i could have given you chapter and a grieved verse about every year after that <laughs> I would have shown that there was, you know, Octavia's whole involvement in the Dionysian cults and once given license we would have gone much deeper into precisely all the kind of ways in which I mean this is not just a sort of history but sociology like Roman sexuality we kind of had to hold off on it's hard now to think about it, it I, I don't know what, what would it'd be a different set of problems today about mm. depicting Roman sexuality. 
one of the things you'd have to deal with, for instance, if you were really going to be true to confronting Roman culture in all its richness and weirdness would be uh, pedophilia, the sex industry there. There are all kinds of levels of the culture and, and, and the politics that we didn't get a chance to, to get into. But on the other hand, shows can also go on too long. And holding a show like that together at a time when, I mean, this is sort of inside baseball stuff, but the technical difficulties of shooting essentially on location in Italy with an English cast, American money, Italian crew and cast, very complicated. HBO learned a great deal from Rome about both how to do things and how not to do things. Can I ask maybe a couple of specifics then? If the show had continued longer, you had essentially a blank slate with Varinus and Pullo. Uh, how did you envision their story continuing forward? Well, here's the thing. With those guys, I kind of trusted the once I got that partnership working and we had the right people cast. And I had that original opening and it's stolen from a thousand classical illusions, but it's Ray Stevenson in old age makeup wandering out of a beautiful villa in the in the Tuscan countryside and saying to make sure you give that goat to we owe that goat to a neighbor alluding to you know a cop to what's his face Rhiannon who am I who what am I trying to remember here whose last words were Socrates Socrates yeah yeah. yeah. exactly (laughs) Pulo saying we owe goat to the next door neighbor and then he's off to kill himself because he's been told to kill himself by Augustus Octavian because he knows too much about the whole story of Octavian's life and then we then go into the show as written we didn't do that and enough time has passed to say the reason that we didn't do that is is smart studio politics in order to get back to that starting point they were committing to (laughs) a seven-year run there was a question that was a kind of hostage to fortune that needed to be answered, and they don't like to do that sensibly. Um, and it also gave Ray Stevenson way too much power. Yeah, too much plot armour, <laughs> I think it's called. So did you envisage that part of what he knew was, or maybe it's all of what he knew, was about Caesarian? Was he going to be heavily involved in that arc? You know, I hadn't thought of the Caesarian gag at that point. I just knew <laughs> that it was... Basically, the the gag was that these two guys, and you know, you could apply it to any political figure that these two guys were in the background and saw everything that happened. Again, Rodgers, Krentz, and Guildenstern, that these guys were there in the backstage to all the shenanigans that went on in history, and you know, behind every great fortune is a great crime. History is essentially an extended cover up of terrible crimes. I don't say that in a moral in tone. I say that that's what makes it fun to explore. You know, mm. I'm glad to see that Octavian's ruthlessness was planted right from the very beginning, though, because I do think in the narrative you can't avoid his. He's shrewd, but he's really cruel to get his own ends. And that was another gift of history to a writer to have this kid, especially a, a you know wonderfully sort of innocent but sharp kid like Max Perkis playing that ruthlessness. Max was really good. I think Simon held his own as well towards the end of the series when he took over the role Simon Woods. If anything, he was more ruthless and he had quite a mean streak to him. I wouldn't like to cross him. 
the necessity of having a mean streak, of having an aspect, a facet of cruelty. Cruelty is a virtue almost in Roman culture. It struck me that Caesar was often criticized. He was praised for his celerity. And it interested me that he was criticized for his mercy. You know, he was unusual or again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I got from from the texts. Yeah, no, it's absolutely there in the ancient texts. I mean, starting with Caesar himself. So he'd be very glad that he'd managed to persuade us that. But I think you can sum it up as he makes you believe him. That's the, the great skill of Caesar. And I think, you know, Kieran Hines is so perfect in that role that he conveys that himself. He's somebody who will draw loyalty uh, yeah. as well as enmity <laughs> in the right circles. It's yeah. funny, Matt was was um, mentioning just before we all joined together, something I hadn't thought of, that all of the kind of great theatrical mainstays of the British stage just disappear, mm. I guess, from the end of the first season with uh, Caesar's death, gradually through yes. the second season, they're all just getting killed off. <laughs> yeah, you, you lose the senatorial class in the show and yeah. it takes on a very different tone after that, I guess. Octavian having the power that he is and fighting against Mark Antony for it. But also, I guess, with the story of Varinus being in charge of the Collegium, mm-hmm. it seems to be a very different shift in tone through the second season because of that. Dramatically, it seemed to me that the death of a great man has to create great suffering. The second season, I wanted to get across that sense of chaos and unpredictability about the future. There's a truth in that, in that the assassins of Caesar thought they'd be celebrated, which I think comes out in the series. They're very surprised by the response. So there is that kind of moment to moment of not realizing how this is going to work out, but just being wrong about the effects of your actions. And the turn to the Collegium was really a kind of a way of, I mean, one of the things with TV shows you have, if you want to be telling a particular kind of story you need to push the story in that direction so that forced us to tell a story of of the roman working classes as opposed to a story of the roman working classes watching the elite do their thing and one of the things that struck me on that score is that very similar to third world politics today very similar to jamaica for instance where there was a completely acknowledged and symbiotic relationship between street gangs and criminal power and and political power that you couldn't have a faction in the senate that didn't have its corresponding force on the on the street because possession of the city was everything i did want to say that one of the things i really appreciate is the you know the way that it's not just the ordinary people but also women are, are kind of drawn into these factions and they're instrumental in the storyline. And we heard a story that Atia was your favourite character. We're wondering if that's true. <laughs> oh, oh, by far. Well, not by far. No, I, they're all fun characters, right? But yeah, Atia, A, Polly Walker is just a wonderful actor to watch at work. So to be able to write for someone, you know, who, who could go for that with glee and, and you know, aplomb and technique and, and a real trooper. And, you know, she's still working with her. I made her be in Pennyworth. <laughs> <laughs> and James um, purifies it as well. Wow. And again, if been able to tell the story in a longer form, that aspect of Roman society would have come much more to the forefront. And I think it's true throughout 
history that just because you're not in the books does not mean that you did not have power. And throughout history, what you see again and again in, in modern circumstances, in a healthy society like Rome was, the female principle is as sacred as the male. And again, that's one of those pagan thoughts that is very hard for Judeo-Christian audiences to understand, but that it's equal, that it can be completely different and represent something completely different. Women were not subjugated. Um, slaves were subjugated. I could waffle on about feminine power in a very Robert Graves kind of way. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you have to get into a bit of that to really understand what paganism is. Did you have a plan to, maybe it's not that aspect precisely, but just when you're talking about, I'm thinking about the character of Timon and he introduces the fact that Judaism is part of Roman society at the time as well. And if you'd had time, was there more of an arc for his character and for, for that oh, rebellion? Sure. Yeah, although with him, I didn't want to get into a kind of um, Charlton Hestony kind of vibe. Right. He's um, he's present at the birth of Christ as one of the three wise men or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, right. And in fact, he has that conflict with his believing brother. They weren't all on Masada. They weren't all zealots. And they couldn't be. I mean, you know, to be a Jew in Rome was very much like being a, a Jew in, in modern societies. You had to gauge how much you wanted to assimilate and work with what was going on. Again, I'm I'm speaking as an old man in his dotage, looking back in wistful, whether or not I could have <laughs> made whole seasons of, of that kind of expansion of the world. Who knows? There's so many kind of technical issues that come up day by day, making that kind of show the best laid plans. By the end, when we were shooting all that death of Antony and Cleopatra, it really felt like the death of Antony and Cleopatra, because we've been shooting on those same sets for quite some time. There was the sadness of, of the end of the show. It took on a real end of an empire type of vibe. Well, I'm conscious of how long we've been going for, but I, I do just want to say thank you for creating the show. I think Rome walked so, so much of modern television could run that without Rome, we wouldn't have got so many other, you know, prestige television that you have now. I think Rome broke a lot of barriers that way and set up quite a lot. And as somebody who has been learning quite a lot of Roman history over the last 10 years, thanks to Rhiannon, <laughs> I think it's one of the most heavily associated ways that I visualize Rome is from that show. It's been uh, uh, lovely fun to talk to you guys. Thank you for taking the time. That was Bruno Heller, creator and showrunner of Rome, and you have been listening to Raising Standards. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any good podcatching platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us on what is left of Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.